Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Uh, the Holy Land, it's $2,750 for all-inclusive once you get to Israel. And uh, if you want some more information about that, I'd be happy to tell you all about it. Uh, But if that's something that you've been wanting to do, I guarantee you that you'll be blessed. I've been a part of uh, over 100 people coming and touring the land, and every single person that went there has been changed, and and their walk with Jesus has just been ignited uh, because of that. So if it's something you're interested in, I highly encourage it, and I'd love to give you some more information about it. Uh, Secondly, uh, we started doing this thing. Uh, I was given a bunch of gift cards. And so I started this thing. If you bring a new friend to Devoted, both you and your friend will get a free dinner at Chick-fil-A or at least a free sandwich. Uh, So I encourage you guys in the next couple of weeks, if you know people, be inviting them, bring them uh, to be a part of what we're doing. We'll have uh, an event in June. I haven't set a date yet, but We'll either do a barbecue on a Tuesday night or our summer barbecue, or we'll do something similar to what we did uh, for Andrew at the park. But in June, we will definitely have some kind of social gathering. And last but not least, um, I really want to try, I don't know if this is going to be too difficult for some of you guys, uh, but to start trying to start closer to 7. And that way we could get done closer to 8.30. I know some people, especially those that have kids and impact girls or Royal Rangers, they got to pick them up at 830. Um, And so it would just go a little bit easier if we could do that. So next week, we'll try to start a little closer to seven. Um, Maybe we'll work our way five minutes at a time until we get to seven. And, uh, you know, so it's not a huge change for everybody at once. Um, But... Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely like to be done by around 8.30. And uh, you guys could stay after and talk, do whatever it is you want to do, but at least give the people that have to leave an opportunity to do so. Um, and I'll work on that on my end. I realize that I need to cut my part of it down. I'll be working on that. So uh, pray for me. If uh, That's a big challenge for me. I've been... <laughs> Hey, I've been getting better at the men's breakfast. They're, they're, they're really on me about it. So I'm learning a little bit of discipline. But I, I do have a lot to say. Uh, with that said, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're continuing uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we're ending the first half of the book. There's two halves to Ephesians. The first half is theological. The second half is practical. And this section here is kind of the bridge between the two. Paul is going to pray that the people will actually be able to live out the theological part of it. So we're in verse 14. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then I'll pray for us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God, I feel kind of weird praying after a prayer so elegant and uh, so great as that, Lord. But I pray that you would help me to expound this prayer of Paul's, that you would teach us to pray from it. But also, Paul is saying this for a reason. He's praying this for a reason. It's not just to teach us how to pray, but it's uh, he, he wants something to come out of us, these principles to come out of us. 
and so that we could enjoy all the blessings that he's talked about so far in this epistle. So would you instruct us from that, Lord? We need to hear from you. Uh, this world is crazy. It's chaotic. It's pulling us in all different directions. There's so many false worldviews. We need your truth. We need your word. We need to uh, to walk according to it. So I pray that you administer it to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was fortunate as a new Christian. I really was. Because I was enfolded in, into this small Bible study, uh, this small community of believers that met once a week at my friend Steve's house. And we were truly an eclectic bunch. We had people from all different walks of life. There were folks uh, that were doctors and some were lawyers in our bunch. We had a cop and we had a fireman. We had car salesmen. We had stay-at-home moms, uh, just about everything in between. Uh, some of us had been Christians for a really long time. Some people like me were little baby Christians and had barely been Christians uh, for months. Uh, and, uh, and so we had this eclectic bunch that would meet together and, and we kind of became a family there for a time but we would study the Bible together, have meals, and pray together. But we began our study each and every week. We would get in a circle, and we had a time of prayer. And we would go around, and kind of each person would take their turn praying out loud as we made our way around the circle. Now, I'm not going to lie. I was absolutely terrified of this, and I hated it. I absolutely hated that I had to pray out loud in front of people, I was so uncomfortable. It made me so nervous. I didn't want to do it. I even thought, hey, maybe I'll start showing up late once the prayer's over just to avoid that part. I, you know, I, I, like I said, I never felt so inadequate. I never felt so uh, uncomfortable in my life. Uh, but as I look back at this time, I realize that what was sheer agony for me, it actually turned out to be one of my greatest blessings. You see, it was during this time of hearing other people pray and learning how to pray out loud that I actually learned how to pray. I was trying to copy my friends, and I kind of just learned how to pray myself from that. You see, the disciples, they noticed that Jesus had a dynamic prayer life in the Gospels. And what did they do? They came to him and they said, hey, teach us how to pray. And do you remember what the Lord Jesus did in response? He gave them a model prayer. He started to pray. He said, when you pray, pray like this. And he started praying and he gave them an example that they could follow. You see, prayer, it's more caught than it is taught. Yeah, there's some great books. There's some great principles that we can learn to enhance our prayer life. But by and large, the way that we're going to learn how to pray is just emulating and imitating other people that we see praying and, and people that we look up to that have a good prayer life. That's why I always in the service asking people to pray together. That's why it's so important to me when we pray out loud and things like that, because I realize that as we're doing that, people are actually learning how to pray. And this is especially true when it comes to intercessory prayer. I think that we don't necessarily struggle, right, when things aren't going our way, when there's things we don't like, when there's things we want out of our life, to cry out to God and to say, hey, remove this, change this, do something about this, God, I'm uncomfortable, I don't like this. That comes quite natural for us. It's a little bit harder when we're trying to pray for other people. Other people that or struggling with things, or other people that may not be walking with the Lord, and things like that. To persevere in persistent intercessory prayer for them is difficult. You know, the Apostle Paul, later on in this letter, he's going to say that intercessory prayer is the whole point of spiritual warfare. He's going to say we put on all the armor from the belt of truth all the way down to the taking up the sword of the spirit. And the whole point of putting that on and getting ready for battle is to go and pray for others, to you know, engage in intercessory prayer on behalf of the saints. In Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20, he says this. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petitions, for the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me 
in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, when we look at the Bible, there's some amazing examples of intercessory prayer that we could learn from. First off, there's Moses. Moses, he intercedes for the nation of Israel when they fall into idolatry. Remember, he's up on the mountain receiving the law from God. And what are the children of Israel doing? They made a golden calf. They're having an orgy. And God wants to destroy them. But Moses is going to intercede for them. Samuel, he uh, interceded for the nation uh, when the ark was returned from the Philistines. Job interceded for his three friends, those three miserable comforters. Uh, in fact, God said, hey, I'm not going to heal you until you pray for your friends. It wasn't until he prayed for his friends, the people that were actually adding trouble to his hurt and his illness and everything he was going through, that he was healed. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. But Jesus is an also an, a great example of intercessory prayer. In the, Old in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that Jesus would be one who would intercede for sinners. It says in Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. In fact, that's Jesus's ministry right now. It says in Hebrews 7.25 that he is at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for this, for the saints. Jesus is in heaven right now interceding for you and for me. And not only does Jesus take up the ministry of intercessory prayer, but that's what the Holy Spirit is doing as well. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, it says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we have both human and divine examples that we can learn from. Tonight, however, in the book of Ephesians, we're going to learn from the great apostle Paul. Hopefully tonight, Paul will teach us to pray more effectively. In 1 John 5, 14 and 15, the apostle John says this, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us, and whenever we ask, we, we know that we will have the requests with which we have asked from him. So it's super important, John's saying, we need to pray in the will of God, and if we pray in the will of God, we will have what we're asking for. So it's important that we know how to pray the right way, and hopefully tonight, Paul is going to teach us how to do that. Paul's already prayed in this epistle. In the first chapter, in verses 3 through 14, Paul's telling us all about the riches, the blessings that are ours because we're Christians, because we're in Christ. And then in verses 15 through 23, Paul starts interceding for the church, for the believers, that those blessings, those riches that he was talking about, that, that they would have uh, enlightenment to those, that they would come to know what those blessings are. Now he's switching. His prayer here at the end of chapter 3 isn't so much about enlightenment, it's about enablement. It's about that we'll take those blessings, not only know what they are, but we'll apply them to our lives. We'll start living them out. We'll, we'll practically be examples of what they are in the world. In other words, his first prayer was about knowing. This second prayer here is about enabling or empowering. It's about doing. Now might be a good time to remind us that prayer and preaching, they always go together. It's not enough to share the gospel or some spiritual truth with somebody and leave it at that. We, we need to go beyond that. We need to pray that the Spirit would illumine or, or actuate that message that we shared. Uh, because it's a spiritual message. It's spiritually uh, appraised. 
you know, without the working of the Spirit, according to First uh, Corinthians chapter two, uh, the natural man can't understand it, right? So, so we share truth, and then we need to pray that that truth would come to power in that person's life. A great example of this is in the Gospel of John. Jesus, he uh, has his last supper with his disciples. It's in John chapter 13 through 16. And in that time, right, Jesus, he's about to go to the cross. He's about to be betrayed and arrested and all that. But he spends that last night of his life not being ministered to, but ministering to his disciples. He's pouring into them. He's sharing truth with them. He's telling them things about the rapture of the church. He's telling them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how this helper is going to come. He's telling them about their need to abide in him, to abide in the vine and things like that. Uh, sharing really, really important truths with his disciples. And when he gets done with that, he spends a whole chapter, chapter 17, then interceding for them, praying for them. He prays to the, the Father that the Father would keep them and, and make them one in all of these things. You see, prayer is super important. I had this friend, uh, and, and he actually moved from here in Southern California up to Oregon. This was probably about 15 years ago. He was having a hard time making ends meet here. He had this job lined up in Oregon, so he moved up there to take the job. And he gets up there, he gets all his stuff unloaded and shows up to the job, and someone's like, you know what, yeah, we needed you, but it turns out we don't, sorry. And so he didn't have the job. He had moved all the way up there, spent all the money and that, and couldn't move back. So he starts looking for whatever job he could find. He starts searching the classifieds, and he sees, hey, these lumberjacks are hiring. I don't really know anything about chopping wood, but I'm a hard worker and I'm willing to learn. I could do it. So he calls the foreman. He's like, hey, I want this job. I could do it. And he convinces this foreman to give him a one-week trial period. The, the foreman said, hey, if you could keep up the production of everybody else, I'll keep you on. But I can't keep on dead weight just because I feel sorry for you. So the guy shows up a half hour early every day, stays a half hour late every day, works through the lunch break. And just works his butt off. Everybody else is taking cigarette breaks, taking lunch breaks. They're kind of goofing around. And the weekends, and the foreman comes up to him and he says, hey, sorry, bud, but we're going to have to let you go. Your production's down. He says, how can my production be down? You know, I come a half hour early. I work a half hour late. I, I don't take a break when everybody else does. I'm just constantly working. And the foreman looks at him and he's like, that's kind of weird. And he says, hey, have you sharpened your axe? The guy's like, what? I need to sharpen the axe? No one told me I need to sharpen the axe. So here's this guy working twice as hard as everybody else and just swinging and doing nothing but wearing himself out and you know, making a mess of things, hacking away and not getting anywhere. And that's the perfect picture of the life without prayer. We could work twice as hard. We could swing that axe all day long and we aren't going to get anywhere without the power of prayer sharpening our axe. So let's look at Paul's prayer and see what we could learn about intercessory prayer and apply it to our walks with Jesus. But let's get the context right first. Paul says, for this reason. For what reason? You see, I mentioned last week that verses 1 through 3 of this third chapter are actually a parenthetical thought. It's as if Paul went down this uh, divinely inspired holy rabbit trail and expanded on the nature of the mystery and his calling to minister the mystery to the church. So now that we got the context, we need to go back to what he said prior to verse 1, which takes us back to chapter 2. In chapter 2, we learn that Paul is talking about uh, both Jew and Gentile becoming one new man in Christ. Right? Those who were far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near, and the two made into one new man in Christ Jesus. And then he used a few metaphors to describe this new relationship that both Jew and Gentiles have to the Lord. He says that we're fellow citizens, that we are one family, that we're one temple. So Paul's prayer here in chapter 3 is in the context of Jew and Gentile being one new man in Christ. Now we could finally look at the prayer. So for letter A, fill in the word posture. We need to have the right posture. 
Verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. If you think about it, this must have been some sight. Paul's in prison, and his imprisonment in Rome, he is literally chained to a soldier 24 hours a day. Every four to six hours, they would rotate soldiers, and Paul would be chained to this soldier. And I guess Paul, every now and then, would just drop to his knees and start praying. <laughs> if you think about it, I mean, I wonder what this soldier's thinking. He's like, oh, here we go again. He's on his knees again. I wonder how long he's going to be there. I wonder, you know, I wonder what he's doing. Here we go again. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we have to be on our knees to pray. That, that's not the whole point of this. See, Abraham stood before the Lord when he prayed for Sodom. Solomon stood before the Lord when he prayed to dedicate the temple. David sat before the Lord when he prayed in 1 Chronicles 17. Jesus fell on his face when he was praying there in Gethsemane. You see, it's not so much about the posture of our body. Nowhere does the Bible say that we have to be on our knees when we pray. You see, instead the Lord is concerned more about the posture of our heart when we pray. Paul bowing his knees before the Father, it's really a, a symbol of humility. It's a symbol of submission. Yes, we have access, as we learned in chapter 218, we both have access to the Father through Christ or through the Spirit, but we must remember who it is that we have access to. It's the king of the universe. It's the sovereign over all things. We need to approach him with such humility and submission if we're going to have the dynamic prayer life he wants us to have. But we also need to come desperately. I, I get this sense of desperation in Paul's prayer. He's on his knees. He's crying out to God. He's saying, I'm helpless. Unless you move, nothing's going to happen. Kind of reminds me of this story. Uh, about Palm Monday, right? Palm Monday. Uh, this guy, he tells this story of Palm Monday. It says, the donkey awakened, his mind still savoring the afterglow of the most exciting day of his life. Never before he had such a rush of pleasure and pride. He walked into town and found a group of people by the well. I'll show myself to them, he thought. But they didn't notice him. They went on drawing their water and paid him no mind. Throw your garments down, he said crossly. Don't you know who I am? They just looked at him in amazement. Someone slapped him across the tail and ordered him to move. Miserable heathens, he muttered to himself. I'll just go to the market where the good people are. They'll remember me. But the same thing happened. No one paid any attention to the donkey as he strutted down Main Street in front of the marketplace. The palm branches. Where are the palm branches? He shouted. Yesterday, you threw palm branches. Hurt and confused, the donkey returned home to his mother. Foolish child, she said gently. Don't you realize that without him, you're just an ordinary donkey? See, we need to come with that desperation before prayer. That without God, we're just an ordinary human. We have no right to be in the presence of God without Christ, with, without what Christ did for us. We have no right to ask him for anything outside of Christ. But in Christ, we have all the access in the world. Letter B, we need to remember who we're talking to. So fill in the word who. Uh, it says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. My Bible has a footnote in the margin. It could be read from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. You see, God is the father of every person that is redeemed. We are one family and God is the father of this new family. Nowhere does the Bible teach us that we're all God's children. See, on the contrary, Jesus teaches us in John chapter 8 that you have one of two fathers. Either your father is God or your father is the devil. Uh, for the unbeliever, right, we need to pray that they get saved and that God becomes their father. For the redeemed, we pray to the father of our new family. In what we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, our father who aren't in heaven. He's our father. That means 
that we are interceding for is our brother and sister. When we're praying for someone in the church, we need to pray with the same fervency that we would pray that it's somebody from our biological family. If my sister or my mom or my dad are hurting, I have a lot more urgency when I'm praying than when Sergio or somebody else is hurting. I just do. But it shouldn't be because technically we're all one family and God is our father. We have the same father. I have the same father as Sergio. I have the same father as Kevin. And so we need to take each other up in intercessory prayer. So my question is, is, is what's bothering you? What's bothering you today? Do you have a parent that isn't saved? Well, you need to pray for them. Do you have parents that can't get along? Well, you need to pray for them. Do you have a rebellious child? Well, the answer is to pray for them. Do you have a friend that you're in conflict with and you, you want to see that relationship restored? Well, you need to pray for them. See, if God, the idea is this, if, if God could take a, a Jew and a Gentile, you can't get more radically different than that. And he could repair their relationship and reconcile them together. Then he could reconcile any relationship there is. Our same father who had the, the ability to bring this diverse group of people together and, and, and make us one is the father that we're praying to, the one who's answering our prayers. Let her see, we need to make the right request. Fill in the word right. In verses 16 through 19, Paul's going to make five prayer requests or petitions. And what's interesting to me is these five petitions, they build up upon each other and they crescendo into verse 20. Verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. It's like these five prayers are five steps to reach this crescendo. Now, I, I think we often hear a verse like Ephesians 3.20, and we're like, that sounds great, but that's just not really a reality in my life. It leaves us kind of baffled. We say we believe it, it's in the Bible, but on the other hand, it's like, it, has that been true for me? Has, has gone done uh, above and beyond anything that I could ask or think? Half the time, I don't feel like he's even doing what I ask. You see, this prayer isn't just a prayer that models to us how to pray. It's also instructive. We could look at these five petitions as five steps building up to verse 20. In other words, verse 20 is the reality if verse 20 is going to become a reality in our lives, we need to follow these five steps, which Paul is desiring would become a reality in our life. As we start obeying these steps, we'll get closer and closer to living out verse 20. Now, the first one of these petitions that the Lord inspired Paul to pray is that we would be strengthened in our inner man. So fill in the word strengthened. Look at verse 16. He says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. See, the Bible teaches that our outer man is perishing. The older I get, the more it hurts and the less it can do. However, for those in Christ, while the outer man perishes, our inner man is being renewed day by day. You see, our outer man becomes weaker and weaker, but our inner man is becoming stronger and stronger. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Are you looking for the bathroom? Oh, I'm sorry. The bathroom's through the exit and to the left. Uh, I'm sorry. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are eternal. 
This world does a lot to preserve the outer man. All the plastic surgeries, makeovers, healthy eating, exercise won't save it. Sooner than later, it's going to diminish. Uh, back in the day, there was a guy who was kind of a hero of mine. He was a bodybuilder named Ronnie Coleman. And he was one of the best bodybuilders who had ever lived. I mean, he had one of the greatest physiques. He was bigger than anybody else. He went on to win Mr. Olympia eight times, set a record. Uh, widely regarded as one of the best, if not the best, bodybuilders in the world. But less than 15 years after he won Mr. Olympia and was crowned, the best bodybuilder on the planet for eight years in a row. Now he, he, he can't even walk on his own. He has to have a walker and uh, just, just to get around because his outer man is perishing. On the other hand, I had a, a friend and kind of a mentor of mine named Mike Swanson. He it was Aaron Swanson's late husband. Now Mike Swanson, when I met him, he had late stage cancer. And in the few years that I knew Mike, we became really close, but I saw his body just waste away rapidly. I mean, he went from being a big, thick, healthy-looking guy to just being skin and bones within a couple of years. But during those two years, I saw his inner man become more and more like Christ rapidly, so much so that when he died, I, sometimes I felt like I was standing next to Jesus. He was so close to Jesus. You see, this world is all about the outer man. They do everything possible to enhance it and to preserve it. But Paul's saying our focus shouldn't be on that. See, our focus should be on the inner man. The main world may look at our body and be impressed, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord's more impressed with what's going on on the inside. And Paul's saying that should be our focus. And second, the Second Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. See, as we look at Jesus, as we are in the Word of God, we are becoming more and more like Him. Our immaterial self, our inner man, is being transformed into the image of Jesus. But how do we strengthen this inner man? How does that work? How do we practically live that out? What's the spiritual disciplines? It's reading the Bible. It's praying. It's memorizing the Bible. It's meditating on the Bible. It's sharing the Bible. It's witnessing. It's serving. It's fellowship. All of these things are going to help us build up our inner man, which Paul is praying would happen. The second petition Paul had was that we would be at that Christ would be at home in our hearts. So fill in the word home. Christ would be at home in our hearts. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Verse 17 sounds a little funny to some believers, right? You're like, wait a minute. I, I thought since I'm a believer that Christ does dwell in my heart. The second I believe, didn't, didn't Christ come inside of me? Isn't that what makes somebody a believer? Isn't that what Jesus said in John 14? In John 14, verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Saying, I'm sending you a helper, and he's going to be with you. He's going to be in you. He's going to live inside you. That's the Holy Spirit. In the book of Romans, Paul says this in Romans 8. He says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The definition of a believer, somebody who's truly saved, is somebody who is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So what is Paul talking about here? Why is Paul praying that Christ would dwell in our hearts? Well, this word dwell here is an interesting word. It's an intensive verb in the Greek. It's ketoikeo. You see, oiko means uh, to dwell in a house. And ket means down. Therefore, ketoiko literally means down home. The idea is, is this, is that Jesus, uh, that the spirit of Jesus lives in us, 
I'm sorry, the, the idea isn't as much that the spirit of Jesus lives in us, but it's that Jesus is at home in us. He's comfortable in us. He, he, he feels comfortable being in our hearts. Uh, I was just talking to my mom about this this morning, and she was telling me that my sister's struggling. Uh, I, I think most of you know this. My sister's gay, and she identifies as gay, but she also identifies as being a Christian. And with Pride Month coming up and that, she's really having this anxiety, right? Because she's there's this tension that she's being pulled on both sides. You know, Christ wants to be at home in her heart, but there's other stuff going on in her heart that won't let him be at home in her heart. And that sin can't be at home in her heart because Christ is also in her heart. So there's this uneasiness, this unsettledness that's going on. You see, that's what Paul's praying wouldn't happen. You see, for many of us, Jesus has a hard time settling down in our hearts because there's competing things going on there. There's movies with immorality and bad language on the television inside of us. There's fighting with family members in the living room. In the kitchen, there's substance abuse going on. In the library, there's false worldviews being spread. See, all of these things are making it hard for Christ to feel comfortable, to be at home inside of us. And if Christ is going to settle in our heart, all that stuff has to go. See, we need to cultivate our heart. We need to remove and eliminate the sin that's inside of us so that Christ could be comfortable and settle down there. You see, Abraham's life is a great illustration of this truth. See, God was going to bless Abraham with this son. So the Lord himself came down and visited Abraham's tent. Remember, he brought two angels with him, and they came to the tent. They talked with Abraham. They even had a meal with him. They felt very much at home in Abraham's tent because Abraham was a man of faith and obedience. But these three guests had another task. They had to investigate the sins of Sodom because God planned to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, a believer, was living in Sodom, and God wanted to warn him to get out before the judgment could fall. But the Lord himself did not go to Sodom. He sent the two angels to Sodom. The Lord did not feel at home in Lot's house the way he felt at home in Abraham's tent because there was sin going on. If we want Christ to dwell richly in our hearts and in our minds, we need to eliminate and remove the things that make him feel uncomfortable being there. So I ask, what has to go so that Jesus could have more of your heart? What, what do we have to give up so we could have more of Jesus as the idea? So we strengthen our inner man. And as we strengthen our inner man, we remove the sinful things so Christ could dwell in our hearts in a growing capacity. Number three, he prays that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Verse 17b, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know how much the love of Christ which surpasses understanding. See, now Paul's employing architectural and guarding terms to describe the reality of what God's love should be in our lives. God's love shouldn't be a surface thing. It shouldn't be a peripheral thing. It shouldn't be something that's out on the outside, something that we have to search for to find. It shouldn't be something that we have to manufacture. It should be the foundation. It, 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 it should be the base of our existence. It should be the roots of who we are. It should go deep is the idea. You see, this word rooted, it moves us into the plant world. The tree must get its roots deep into the soil if it's going to have nourishment and stability. The Christian must have its spiritual roots deep in the love of God. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 is the perfect description of this word. One of the most important questions that Christians can ask himself is, for what do I draw my nourishment and my stability? If there is to be power in the Christian life, then there must be depth. The roots must go deeper and deeper into the love of Christ. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, David writes, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path 
of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. You know, the the foundation really is the most important part of the billing. If you do not go deep with foundation, you can't build high. See, if we want to go high in worship and service, we need to first go deep and root ourselves in the love of God. You know, Jesus told a parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount of two different men that build homes. Remember, one went deep and built it on the foundation, on the bedrock. The other built his home on the sand. Now the same storm came and one of them, their house got destroyed. The one whose house was built on the sand. The one who built his house on the bedrock, though, had survived. And now Jesus said the person who heard his words and, and acted on them was the one who built it on the foundation. In Romans 8, 35 through 39, Paul writes, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I love that. Any other created thing. That includes you. Even you can't separate yourself from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Number four. Paul prays that we may experience Christ's love in all of its dimensions. Fill in the word experience. Look at verse 18. He says that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now, it's difficult to know what Paul is talking about here. There's a few verses that that might lend us... uh, a hand. Jeremiah 31, 3. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Another option, Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. How about Micah 7.19? He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Yet it seems legitimate to say that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially the Jews and the Gentiles, the theme of these chapters. It's long enough to last for eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and it's high enough to exalt him all the way to heaven. And what I want you guys to do next to this passage in your Bible, I want you guys to draw a cross. I think that's what Paul's really getting at. You see, because the bar of the cross, one of them reaches up to heaven. The other one goes down into the dirt. The other two, the crossbars, Go point to the east and to the west. So we have height, depth, and the breadth. And right in the middle of it, we have the love of God. We have Jesus Christ hanging on the cross for sinners, for you and me. Taking our sin, taking our judgment, taking our place. Now we experience, or we begin to experience the full dimension of Christ's love. Christ's love begins to overwhelm us and impact the way we treat others. We become saturated in Christ's love that we can't help but love those around us. Once we're totally enamored by the love of God, love is just going to flow out of us. Love is going to be the natural disposition of the believer to the world. 
Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, this love, though, it's past knowledge, Paul says. You know, one can't learn about it in a book. It can't be explained. It has to be experienced. It has to be felt. You see, falling in love is a great example of this. You can explain to somebody what it feels like to fall in love. Maybe you see it in a movie, two people fall in love. You read a romance model and, a novel and you think you understand it. But nobody really understands what it's like to fall in love until they actually fall in love. And it's the same thing with the love of Christ. It can't be communicated. It has to be experienced. It has to be felt. Number five, Paul prays that we would be filled to the fullness of God. Look at 19. He says that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So we've strengthened our inner man. We've made Christ at home in our hearts. Uh, this has rooted us in the love and allowed us to experience the full dimension of Christ's love. Uh, and once we've experienced these realities, we can be filled to the fullness of God. Now, this idea of the fullness of God, imagine I go to the beach and I got a jar and I stick it down in the Pacific Ocean and I look at this jar. Now, does this jar have everything that the Pacific Ocean all of the Pacific Ocean in it? No, that's ridiculous. The ocean is greatly more vast than what's in this jar. But the jar has everything that the Pacific Ocean is in it. Right? This jar is 100% Pacific Ocean. And it's the same thing for us. God is infinite. Right? We'll never have all of God inside of us. But we could have all that God is inside of us. All that's inside of us be God is the idea. Now, God is fully in us. His attributes are going to live through us. His communicable attributes become our attributes. We're going to start to display the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. You know, all of those are going to become a greater reality in our life because God is in us. The fullness of God is in us. Just like the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Christ Jesus, now all that God is is going to dwell inside of us. But we need to trust his power and ability. So fill in the word trust. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Paul says God is able. Well, he's able to do what? Notice how he heaps up phrases to describe God's sovereign might. To do above. But that's not all. To do above and beyond. But that's not all. To do above and beyond all that we ask. But that's not all. To do above and beyond all that we ask or think. I love what one pastor said. He said, God could do more in response to one prayer than we could do in a hundred years of planning and plotting. Do we believe God alone is the only sovereign? He is the one who raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as head over the church, and he has put all things under his feet. If so, then pour out your heart to him, believing he is able. You know, I never thought I'd be working at a church. I never thought that Sunday that I would be on stage interviewing a, a congresswoman in front of an audience. At one time, that was infinitely beyond anything that I could ask or think of God. You know, some of this, that, you know, going exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we could ask or think, we're going to see some of that in our life. But some of it we're going to see in glory. I'm convinced of that. We have no idea all that God's doing in and through and around us. But one day we will. You see, when I got sick, God gave me a vision that he was going to take my arm. He showed me my arm being cut off, but he showed me how he was going to use it for good. 
He showed me blessings were going to come out of it. I got to see some of that. About six months after I lost my arm, this guy came up to me on the street and he's like, hey, you're Joe McGuire. And I'm like, I have no idea who you are. And I, I thought he was coming to serve me papers or something. <laughs> Anyways, he comes up to me and he's like, hey, you don't know who I am. But my mom worked at this hospital that you were in. She was the one who did the admission. And she died two years ago from cancer. But those last two years she was alive, all she could talk about was you. How you had such horrible circumstances. You were suffering greatly. You were in a position no one would want to be in. But you had peace. And you were worshiping God through it. And she said, hey, if he could do that, I could do it too. And because of that, she got saved. And because of that, I got saved. And I was blown away. You know, I had no idea that God was going to use my suffering you know, to do that great work. And I'm convinced of this. One day I'll get to heaven and I'll see the full extent of what God did through you know, me suffering and his faithfulness. Letter E, uh, we need to have the right goal. Fill in the word goal. Look at verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. All prayer should have its goal or its end to mean Christ receiving glory in the church throughout the ages. That's the end goal of everything. That's the end goal of what we're doing. That's the end goal of every prayer should be that God receives glory, that, that Christ is honored, Christ is glorified, Christ is lifted up. So Paul showed us some models, a model prayer. He showed us some principles that we could be praying for, some ways that we could model our prayer life after. But he also was praying this with you and me in mind. He wants us to experience verse 20. He wants us to experience God doing exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ask or think. And to get there, to get where we're seeing these things in our life, we need to follow these steps that he's laid out for us, these things that he's prayed for us. right? We, we need to strengthen our inner man. We need to allow Christ to be at home inside of us. right? We, we need to be rooted and grounded in his love. We need to experience the full dimensions of Christ's love. Realize all that Christ's love is for us. And then we need to be filled with the fullness of God. Amen. So God, we do. We pray for this. I echo Paul's prayer. I pray that those things would become a reality for us. I pray that you would teach us to pray. I pray we would become better at praying, that we would pray more in your will, in your spirit, for your glory, that our prayers would be saturated with your word, Lord. So would you teach us how to do that? However it is, whatever you need to do to teach us to be closer to you, to pray to you, to constantly be talking to you, may that come to pass in our life. Lord, we do want to see you do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we could ask or think. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement that we that we can't pray big enough. The biggest prayer request we could come up with, you're going to go above and beyond that, Lord. And I trust that you're doing that, but I pray we would start to see more of that in our life. That would become more of a reality with our walk. And so help us to apply these principles to our life. 